Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Well, tonight's show will feature two descendants of the United States Colored Troop Soldiers. And they will share stories derived from the pursuit of pension benefits. They were listeners and they heard of the Legacy Family Tree webinar on April 24th when I discussed the United States Colored Troops Civil War Widows Pensions Tell the Story and challenged everyone, hoping that someone would say, I have a story to share. And indeed, we do have two individuals tonight to share their stories. Tanya Hall has been researching for 20, 30 years, and she is a genealogical researcher, lecturer, and writer. She was the lead researcher for the PBS series, It's a Family Reunion, co-author of African Americans of Giles County, and she has served as president for a local genealogical society. She is currently studying to become a certified genealogist. Antoinette Broussard has contributed biographies to the African American National Biography edited by Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. and Evelyn Brooks Hickenbottom, Oxford Press 2008 and to Harlem of the West, photographer Lewis Watts and editor Elizabeth Pepin, Chronicle Books, 2006. She is currently a writer and co-producer for the Days with Zara television show, ABC, and periodically appear on the show as Miss Adequate. In addition, she has co-authored the forthcoming book, Days with Zara Travel Guide, 
May 2015, and we certainly want to hear about that book, and has also published various articles on the accomplishments of her great aunt, Dr. Nettie Craig Asbury, a civil rights activist, and her cousin, Lula Craig Sadler, a pioneer educator. So let me give a warm welcome to my two guests, Antoinette Broussard and Tanya Hall. And we will begin with Tanya Hall. Tanya, are you online and ready to discuss your descendant, Philip Wilkes? Tanya, I don't hear you. Okay, Tanya, are you on now? I am. Okay, I made a switch and I had Antoinette Broussard on. So thank you so much, Tanya, for taking the challenge. And so why don't you start by sharing with us what you knew or what you already, what you knew about your ancestor, Philip Wilkes, before you went into his Civil War pension record. Well, actually, I knew very little about him. Um, I was trying to find him because I wanted to see if he actually was my second great-grandfather's brother. I was trying to find their relationship. Okay, and what did you find? I did find that they were brothers because it was said in the affidavit and trying to prove um, the kinship of the children of Philip and Puss Wilkes, whose name actually was Ann Elkins Wilkes. She was um, describing the um, trying to find the dates of the children's birth dates to prove uh, the children of Philip and Puss. So and why don't you tell us, yes, go ahead on and tell us about Philip. Uh, when did, where did he serve? Just tell us as much as you can. He um, served for two years from 1862 to 1864. Uh, he uh, mainly served in Tennessee. He discharged in uh, Chattanooga due to his health. Um, let me tell you the story that was in his service file that he recorded in his own words. It says, I contracted the disease of the lungs, which I have now in December 1964 during the Battle of Nashville. We stood in the battle near Gallatin, Tennessee, from four to six hours in the rain with no overcoats, S snowing. And from time to time, with exposure, I began having pains to my breast and to my back. I was hospitalized by Dr. Cosby, who gave me medicine. After this, I was commenced with wheezing and difficulty breathing. After that, Dr. Chaplin said that I should be relieved from active duty as a private, and they put me as a corporal so that I could be placed in a tent. 
So, you know, it was amazing to me to find out that he was under these conditions, that they would allow them to stay out in the rain and the snow and not have an overcoat. How could you allow human beings to be treated this way? But I guess because they were colored troops. Well, the elements were very difficult for for everyone. Unfortunately, this was a a horrible war. Yes, for both sides. Given that it was, you know, man fighting their own brothers. You know, the worst war for the United States: the North fighting the South, brothers fighting brothers. So for him to come home under that condition with eight children, how was he to provide for them? How was his wife to provide for them? And it was amazing that in one of the affidavits that was given by uh, Dr. John Wilkes, he said that um, he knew Philip Wilkes very intimately for his whole entire lifetime because he was owned by his father. And during his time period when he went in, he was quite well. But now that he was ill, he was going to take him in to live with them. So I found that story very fascinating, that this man who was owned by his father, that he now would let him come to live with him. So given the fact that he was owned by his father and he felt close enough to let him come live in his home, you know, what was actually that relationship? Of course, we'll never really know. But I find that very curious. I can imagine. What do you suspect? Well, actually, I suspect that his father was Philip's father. Or that they were, you know, perhaps they were just very intimate because they were childhood friends or what have you. But I really suspect that Dr. John T. Wilkes was Philip's father. Because even after, excuse me, after the war, uh, Pappy Jack, who is my second great-grandfather, he was given land uh, by Dr. John T. Wilkes. So I, you see what I mean? Why was he given this land from the doctor, this white man that owned them? And that mm-hmm. land is still in our family today. Wow. Have you found any, any land records associated with him giving the land to your great-great-grandfather? No, we actually haven't found the land records of that part. It's just family history. Because even, um, let's say, 10 years ago, when um, one of my cousins passed away, when she tried to transfer the land, when we went to the courthouse, that, that even the deed for her no longer existed. But it was a wonderful thing that I had already copied. So, mm-hmm. therefore, 
they couldn't take the land away. Very so, good. And it's over twelve hundred acres, and I own six hundred acres. So, you know, it's a good thing that I had already made the copies of all the um, land records that our family did own. Oh, and it's very yes. interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting because the only thing that separates our land from their land is the um, slave cemetery. So, you know, we're still divided all these years later. Yes, and the slave cemetery, were, uh, are your family members, some of your family members in that cemetery? Oh, definitely, definitely. And our family still continued to uh, bury our family members there. Um, years, I think the last family member buried there was buried there in the 40s. So. And how early have you been able to identify the, the earliest uh, burial in that cemetery? Well, we're not really sure because there's a rock there, and that's all that's there. There's several, you know, just rocks. Um, so we're not really sure the dates of those. Uh, the university came in and did a dig. Um, so we found coins and, um, you know, artifacts. But, you know, we can't really say the age of that stone. So we're not really sure how far back uh, those headstones are. And we have a question coming out of the chat right now. Where did the family live? Castilian Springs, Tennessee. Castilian Springs, okay. Now, with your Civil War uh, pension record, is that a consolidated pension record? Meaning, yeah. do you have widows? Well, tell us what you discovered in the widow's pension record, and when did your uh, ancestor pass away? Uh, By the way, before you answer that question, if we have a follow-up. What county is that in? That's Sumner County. Okay. It's, uh, Castilian Springs is about... 40 miles away from Gallatin, Tennessee, if that'll make it more familiar to most people, they'll know where Gallatin, Tennessee is. Okay. Okay, so uh, tell us. Philip died in uh, December 1890. So it was at that point that um, Anne filed for the widow's pension. And that's actually where the fascinating part of the um, story starts because she was <laughs> she was a spitfire <laughs> <laughs> okay tell us about her we want to hear the story yeah. and you know I think most people don't realize that the whole thing about this is the story um, it's not just about finding the record it's the story story because yes this file started you know in the 1800s but this file ends in 1938 when she passed away so look at all that lifetime of hers that's there um you know her t children their affidavits what happened at one point um <clears throat> one of her checks 
did not arrive. And she went to the postmaster very angrily and told him that she didn't care where her check was, but he better find it. (laughs) (laughs) So then she went to the bank and told the bank that somehow one of them had stolen her check and she was going to be sure to go find the uh, police and make sure that one of them was arrested because someone in this city has town has stole her check. Well, her oh, daughter, <laughs> her daughter uh, went and the treasurer's department finally came down to do an investigation. And uh, he said, I'm going to read his actual words. Okay. He he said, this is one of the most unusual cases that I've had to investigate. On its face, it seemed an easy matter to unravel. But after a couple of days of search and questioning, I have found myself no closer to a solution than when I started. However, (laughs) Puss Wilkes has made it very clear that if I do not find a solution in a day or two, I will have to reckon with her. (laughs) (laughs) So they came to interview her, and she made it very clear that she was not able to read nor write. She did not know who had taken her check, but she did know that she didn't care about the photocopies. She didn't care about the postman. She did (laughs) not care about the the bank. But someone better find her check, and they better find it soon. (laughs) Oh, so I I can hear you laughing, and I can imagine how you reacted when you read that in her file. Oh, and it goes into great detail because they interviewed her children as well as a couple people in the town. And I would not have known that there was a child that that I didn't know existed. So, you see, you find information in these files that will help you in your genealogical search. Um but they did come to find out that a woman had stole her check. And um, when they re- finally reached one of the tellers, I, I, you know, for lack of a better term, they, you know, they didn't call them tellers then. But um, the teller came about and said <laughs> that she recalled a woman coming in that she thought was her. And so she cast the check. And when this woman was in the court saying that, Puss said, now you know, you know, with a few explicitives there, that that was not me. That woman is almost six foot and I'm barely five. So either you need glasses or I need some higher shoes. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, so this is why I say she was a little spitfire. And so in reading these stories about her, uh, you know, it brings them to life. Uh, so I don't think, you know, people need to realize, they need to go read these affidavits, get these um, uh, pension files, because there's so much, you know, just so much. I don't know, puts a little more meat on the bones. Yes, yes. Well, I want you to take us back for a minute. How uh, did she, first of all, are you saying puss? As yes, far as you know, and, and I think, you know, I, I wish I could find out why they use that name. Mm -hmm. Because her name is actually Anne. Uh, and this brought about a problem when she did pass away. The government didn't want to send the funds to bury her because they had always referred to her as Puss. Mm -hmm. But her name is actually Ann. Okay. And so when did Ann and uh, Philip meet? And did she describe the marriage and their life? Yes, yeah, she did describe their marriage. She said that, uh, well, you know, in Tennessee, that you don't have to... Uh, uh, remarry again if you married in slavery. There's the law doesn't require them to remarry. So pretty much about their marriage, all she says is that they were married mm -hmm. in slavery. Uh, that's pretty much all she says about that. Well, let me back up and say this: How it came about that I uh, I was in the archives and a woman came to me and said, there's another person here researching the Wilkes's. And so she came to me. Now, I, our family spells the name W-I-L-K-E-S. And the lady that I met, she spells her name W-I-L-K-S. And so, but she's from the same area as my family. And even though we share some of the same names, she told me there was no way we were not related under any circumstances. Now, this town is too small for us not to be related, but she was certain that we were not. Um, but from what I saw, we had to be related. There were too many um, family members that the names matched, the time period, the location, and she said, the families have always said that they were not related. Spell our names differently. Well, lo and behold, in this widow's pension file does explain why the names are spelled differently. Puss explains it. She says, that the white folks told them that the niggas, can I say that <laughs> that they should not spell their names W-I-L-K-E-S, because that was for the white folks. Even though she could not spell or write, 
they were to change their names to W-I-L-K-S. But Jack Wilkes said he was born W-I-L-K-E-S, and he was going to die W-I-L-K-E-S. But Philip changed his name to W-I-L-K-S. So now the two families know that they actually are related and why the two brothers spelled their names differently. What an interesting story. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and for us to find that out all a hundred and something years later, that isn't in that, that same town, isn't that something? Yes, it is. It is. And you... And it just so happened that you met her at the archives? We met at the archives. She was doing some research as well. But she was, you know, adamant that we were not related. And come to find out. And later on, she was the one that actually gave me a photograph of Anne. She had the photograph of her. And so luckily now I have a copy of that photograph oh that's wonderful now there's a question coming out was it the tennessee tennessee state archives or the national archives national archives so you were in washington dc yes very interesting anything very else you'd like to share about this story before we take a break uh, no, not at this time, no. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. We're going to take a quick break and come on and we're going to hear from Antoinette Broussard. Just a quick break, everyone. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded 
from Vlog Talk Radio and iTunes. Well, I am happy to welcome Antoinette Broussard to the line, and she's live, and she will share with us her stories about Henry Wallenford. So, Antoinette, you're live. Okay, <laughs> thank you. I um, I started looking for Henry Wallingford, uh, part of my family line, um, they are Wallingfords. Um, actually, my um, great-grandmother, Violet, was um, brought to Platte County, Missouri in approximately 1835 by a man named William Payne Wallingford. They came from, um, they came from Kentucky, and William Payne Wallingford uh, owned uh, my great-grandmother. And he fathered um, he fathered her eight of her children, including one was my one was my grandfather. And when Violet and her um, children were freed, and she made it across the uh, Missouri River to Platte, to um, Leavenworth, Kansas, with her children in 1865 she had decided that she refused to take Wallingford's name. She said that was her slave name. So she uh, took the name of Craig for their surname. Apparently that's a name that many of her other family members had adopted once they were freed. And so when I started uh, you know, researching Violet and my grandfather and his siblings, I came across uh, a guy named Henry Wallingford in the 1880 census. And I was trying to see were they um, related to me because actually we actually are Wallingfords, though we went by the name of Craig. And um, so I first disc- I wrote a le- I wrote an ar- article that got published about one of Violet's children, um, Dr. Nettie Craig Asbury. I wrote an article about her, and a librarian in a, at the University of Kansas picked it up, and she told me, she said, look, there are, there's a whole group of Henry, uh, there's a whole group of Wallingfords in Leavenworth and Atchison, Kansas. And so I said, I saw them in the census, but I couldn't find them. And finally, I went to the African American Museum there in Leavenworth, and they made the connection for me. And once I connected with these Wallingfords, we were still trying to determine if we were related. So what had happened, I had earlier, before I met this line of Wallingfords, I pursued Henry Wallingford's pension file in 2006. And a paper trail developed, and they kept searching and searching and sending me letters and saying they couldn't find it. And by 2008, they told me the file was lost. So after I connected with these, with this line of African-American Wallingfords in Leavenworth, Kansas, at a family reunion, I decided in 2012 I'd try once again to get his pension file because it would hopefully answer some questions for for our family. And uh, eventually someone from the regional office in Baltimore, Maryland, called me and told me they found, they located his file. So I'm saying this to not discourage someone from uh, searching the pension files. I'm saying this because it's important not to give up. I'm glad I didn't give up. And so um, I was. We were trying to now. This you know, our Wallingford family was trying to clarify 
what we found in the census with uh, what uh, we were hoping that the pension file would clarify some of these records because it was rather confusing. So Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, his pension file had conflicting places of birth. One document in the file said Henry was born in Mason County, Kentucky. Another said Henry was born in Fleming County, Kentucky. But I knew Fleming County, Kentucky. I knew that Fleming County, Kentucky was formed from land given from Mason County. They're right next door to each other. And the Wallingfords are from both of these counties. So Henry was born in 1848. It didn't state who his um, father was. Um, But I was, you know, since that his father was related to the Wallingfords that owned my great-grandmother, Violet. And um, there were many other Wallingford brothers who lived, Wallingford brothers and cousins who lived in Mason and and Fleming counties and who owned slaves, actually um, fathered children through their slaves. So Henry enrolled in the military at the age of 19. This is all what I found in his military file. He uh, enrolled at the age of 19 in Maysville, Kentucky, which is the county seat of Mason County. And depending on the perspective of who wrote uh, some of these pension files uh, documents, Henry was listed as a mulatto and someone else listed him as dark. Um the file told told me that over a period of time of Henry's life, the different places where he lived. He lived in Maysville, Kentucky, Leavenworth, Atchison, Oak Mills, Waynetta, Kansas, Indiana, and Ohio. And he also lived in the soldier's home in the last of those last three states. The medical exams that were charted um, charted his medical history in the pension file and what disability income he qualified for. He qualified for $10 a month, and his medical history revealed that Henry was very sick. He was diagnosed with kidney disease, heart disease, rheumatism, chronic diarrhea, disease of the urinary organs, vertigo, and asthma. It also detailed, the pension files also detailed his marital information, because there was confusion over who he was married to and who his children were when we found uh, uh, the records of him in the census. So um, his pension file kind of clarified that he wasn't just married to one person. He had three uh, He had three wives. He was married to Emily Wallingford, and she died in 1891, and it specified their three children. And then she was married to Elila. He was married to Elila Ferguson in 1897 in Atchison, Kansas. And it shows that Henry was 48 and Lila was 21. And then they broke up. And later, uh, Lila married another man, and he died in 1934. And Lila came back after Henry had died, and she tried to... Um, get his pension records in 1948 and 49, but she failed to furnish evidence that established a relationship with Henry. And then his third wife, Harriet, who Henry married in 1906, 
she applied for one half of his pension. His pension was $10 a month. And it's a letter in there saying that Henry asked for her to be denied any money, saying that uh, he needed it for his support and that they had only lived together for one month and they had split up. And uh, she, you know, her claims was that she was injured and having difficulty working, but uh, she never got any of his um, pension money. And then there was, you know, there were several letters in there from various people vouching for his character and who Henry was. And there was one from his mother who was listed in the 1880 census uh, with a different last name. And she wrote a letter in 1910 verifying Henry's birth date. Um, and, And her letter came from Natchez, Mississippi. And so this helped me kind of research his um, mother further. But I I never found any mention of his father's identity, though I suspect I know exactly the group of Wallingfords that he, you know, um, who he came from. He died in uh, July 31st, 1918. But the pension file just provided clarity on his marriages, his children, his place of birth, where he lived, his medical history, his race, and his literacy. Well, this sounds like a very rich file. Was it over 200 pages? It was, I'm looking at it, it's it's maybe about 100 pages, 75 mm-hmm. or 100 pages. Yes. Um, but but I found out, you know, um, I found out a lot about him. And um, as you mentioned to me before, really the one way to really know if you're related to someone is to do the D- DNA and mm-hmm. I suspect that uh, that's we're going to have another Wallingford uh, reunion this summer, and I'm going to bring it up. I mean, I've found people through, um, because I have another pension file I uh, pursued also, but I've found people through genealogical research that, that I didn't even know I was related to, that I didn't even know existed. And I'm learning that the more you put out there, the more you're going to get back. And it's just oh, so yes. rewarding. Right, right. Well, uh, there's a question coming out of the chat of which I won't answer. I'll let you answer the question. But okay. the question is, what is the process in getting information from the pension file? What is the bare minimum that one can expect from the pension file? Um, you mean, where, where if they're asking where you apply for it's through the uh i i would go on the website of the national archives and look for a direction there unless you can suggest a better way right well first of all what i will say to the uh questioner is that these are federal records and the first thing you would want to do is confirm that the person was a mem- uh, was in the, the military. And so you would go, you could go on Fold 3 or you can go on Ancestry. And on there, you would look for a card, an index card, that would tell you what line of service they were in. And then you would request that record from the National Archives by going to the NARA.gov website and then going into the military records and you could request it. That's one way. The other is to hire somebody. There's also the uh, National Park Service database. Thank you, Angela. Now, as far as the bare minimum information, 
you will find uh, when they were mustered in, you will find a service record if in a death record because you have to have proof, proof yeah. of service, you have to have proof of death. And there is something that's in the record that's called a brief. And this brief will provide you with pretty much a summary of everything that you will find in the record. So the bare minimum, you will have an application because they had to apply. You right. will have, as I said, the service uh, information, the death information. If it's an invalid pension, you will certainly see the medical reports and the medical condition. And then you'll see testimonies. Now, if it's a, a consolidated, that is, if there's a widow's record, then you will have to see proof of marriage. If there are children that are to receive benefits, you will see information about the children. And then you may see testimony from other people vouching for the accuracy of the information. They, they needed proof. It's all about proof. And that's what makes the record so rich, that you are right. able to find all of this proof. Right. It really, it, you're, you're right. It just gives you a great insight into what was happening in their lives. Because um, um, I, I have another pension file I uh, got, and it just gave me a lot of insight into this person's character and, and uh, what, you know, what, how their life was after the Civil War and um, until uh, the time that he died and then his wife got his uh, pension benefits. This is another family member, but um, well, tell us about it. What if you have the record to to share with us? Just what were what did you find about life after the Civil War? Well, you know, um, th this is a record on Mary D. Sadler, and um, uh, I just found that you know, like a lot of my and he was from Platte County, Missouri, the same place where my family was from, and they were all farmers, and. Um, that they just, you know, uh, they moved from, uh, after he was discharged, he came back to Platte County and he married um, someone he knew there before, before he enlisted. He enlisted under his owner's name, and after he was uh, honorably discharged, he came back and he got, he, um, you know, uh, didn't use his owner's name anymore. He used his father's name, which was Sadler. And um, uh, his father-in-law, Reverend John Samuels, who was a minister in Platte County, Missouri, married Sadler and his daughter, Harriet, in their home. And, you know, for me, studying people who were in Platte County, Missouri, my black and white relatives, um, it, it just kind of showed me... Um, some apparently were doing, I think, better financially than others. Some maybe were free before um, 1860, 1864. I mean, excuse me, 1863. Whereas my immediate family, Violet and her children, didn't weren't freed uh, until almost 1865, because they didn't have to free their slaves in Missouri um, when the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was first written because Missouri didn't succeed from the Union. And so I just learned a lot about history here. And so um, when Meredith, Meredith uh, Sadler came home and he married Harriet, um, 
It lists all their nine children uh, chronologically by name and age. He was a farmer, and he eventually he went with some of my other family members to Nicodemus, Kansas. They were some of the first pioneers at the black um, uh, town of Nicodemus, Kansas, in the surrounding county. And um, it also um, in in the uh, medical report it, it talks about his declining health. And there were letters from witnesses, including his mother-in-law, Leanna Samuels, that vouched for Meredith's character and his eligibility for a pension. And that he had to um, produce the family's Bible records, which that was where their uh, marriage record was uh, entered uh, to prove that that they were married. And in 1920, he received $72 a month, a full pension, and by 1926, it was increased to $90 a month because it was stated in his medical exams that he, that he had become completely helpless. Mm-hmm. And then it, it talks about he passed away in 1929, what his burial expenses were listed as. I think, uh, were they $200? Something like that. Very low. And um, then there's information about his wife, Harriet, where she was born. And it looks like she could sign her name. Meriday, when he would sign one of the papers, it, it was um, someone had written his name, but he put his X there. It talks about what, she was 16 when they first had their first child, and then she went on to apply for a widow's benefits uh, after Meriday died because she had no no uh, income. So every time I reread these files, I just discover more and more information, and it's right. Very, right. you know, it's 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 they're thick files, and so you know, I begin to thumb through them, and then um, when I go back and really, really read it more thoroughly, there's just more and more information that pops up. That's right, and you know, one, and I'm I'm glad you said that because one of the things that I strongly encourage individuals to do is to read every single piece of paper. Yes, mm-hmm. because if not, you you might say, "Oh, this is just so hard. It's incursive. I can't just read this handwriting." Right. But that's the 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 page that you skip may have so much information that there's just a wealth of information. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat of which we can, you know, banter back and forth as far as how we respond to this question. But the question is about for ancestral roots in southern states where the enslaved person likely did not serve in the Union Army, but may have gone to war with their Confederate slaveholder. Is there any existing records that may list the names of those enslaved persons? You know, I, I, one, one of the things I would encourage you to do is certainly to look in the Freedmen Bureau records. You may find a listing of enslaved individuals in the Freedmen Bureau records. At least they're not enslaved anymore, but certainly you will find the register of colored people in that particular community. And when they register, they may put whether they were enslaved and who the previous the slave owner was. 
so that's just something to, to think about as far as finding that information. But I have the line open for both of you, Tanya and Antoinette. And Antoinette, do you have any more you want to share with us about what you found in the records? Because it just sounds like you were just sitting on this gold mine of information. And then to also find that your ancestors were exodusters, you know, they ended up in Nicodemus, Kansas. Wow. That's that's wonderful. Did I lose both of you? Hello? Okay. Okay, I'm you're on. <laughs> For a minute there, it was, it was complete silence. And I said, I hope I didn't uh -oh. lose you. Okay. So, uh, Antoinette, is there anything else you want to say about your family stories and what you uncovered in the records? Well, you know, what I found in... Um that a lot of my family came from Kentucky, but they were uh, uh, some were enslaved in in uh, Kentucky and some were enslaved in uh, Missouri. But many of them, uh, as I kind of studying, you know, their uh, uh, their movement went to Nicodemus, Kansas, and um, so it was just really a kind of a, a rich history for me to you know. To know that they didn't, they didn't, they didn't give up, and that my great grandmother Violet, who was subjected to exploitation by William Payne Wallingford, um, she took her children to Leavenworth, and Wallingford refused to help them, and she raised um, eight children uh, on her own until she remarried, and then they went to Nicodemus for a while. So. You know, the more you learn about your family, uh, the more you're told through oral history, just the prouder, the more inspired, I believe, you become. Yes. That's what I want to say, yeah. Right, yes, yes. So for both of you, uh, what what kind of advice would you give to anyone seeking to find additional information about their ancestors in the, those records? I, Tanya? I, oh. Go ahead, Antoinette. Antoinette. Oh, no, I, I would tell um, them to follow just what you said to, you know, determine if they were in the military, you know, to get that information uh, and then to pursue the record and, and to really not give up. Uh, these are really old records, so some of them are probably possibly hard to find, but it's just a wealth of information in it. Yeah, and like and you said, um, they may tell you they don't have the record, but don't let that stop you because if they were a military person and you do have the record number, just keep trying or, like you said, hire a person uh, to go get the record for you or make that journey yourself. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. And and you're right, don't give up because those records are there. And if they're not there, sometimes you'll discover that they may be over at the um, Veterans Administration. Just keep re-requesting your record until perhaps they are able to discover it. Now, I don't know, you said you received a phone call from an office in Baltimore. 
Was that right. Veterans Administration? I'm looking at it right now. Let me see. I think it might have been. Um, trying to find it. I think it was. Um, let's see. It's from uh, the Department of Veterans Affairs, Baltimore yes. Regional Office. Right, right, he, yes. And, and he called me and he said, look, we found it in such and such a place, you know, I don't remember quite where he said it was, but but it it had been I guess I think misfiled or put somewhere where it wasn't supposed to be, and and he apologized to me and he said just give me a little while he said I'm going to copy it and I'm going to mail it to you, and so that was um, you know really nice and I I have others that I'm going to pursue now because. Um, uh, you know, I'm writing a book about my family, and uh, the more information that I can pull up from that period of time, uh, I feel the more, you know, interesting I can write that book. Right, and it's so important to tell that story, and that's one of the, the things that I want to just to emphasize over and over again, that once you have those files, you have a story and you have a yeah, story yeah. that you want to share with others. And as you said, you're writing a book, which is wonderful to, to write that book. But we need to hear more stories because believe oh. me, they're there. You know, I really would like to see how many Civil War pension records will show evidence that the former slave owner testified on behalf of the pensioner. Oh, that right. Would, that would be some interesting research. And in fact, I've been thinking about doing it myself. But I wonder how many people could actually find that evidence in their record. I certainly have observed in the records that I've looked at that credibility goes way up when the former slaveholder comes in and states, yes. They were married. Yes, I know them very well. And it just makes all the difference in the world. Oh, yeah. And Angela's yeah. saying that she has a file like that. And so for, for those of you that did not have opportunity to listen to the Legacy Family Tree webinar where I spoke about the Civil War Widows Pensions uh, Records Tell the Story, please go on that website and order the, the webinar and you can hear more about it. Uh, Angela's giving us a little bit more information. She's saying that the slaveholder's daughter com uh, confirmed that her Lydia was married to the soldier. And so wow. this, you know, this is just wonderful information. Folks, it's a wealth of information out there. You know, we've had, we've had over 100 and let's say 80,000 plus uh, African-Americans in the, the Civil War. I, don't, I can't tell you how many of them apply for a pension or how many widow's pension records exist, but it's certainly something that you would want to pursue on your ancestor. Well, do you all have any other words? And by the way, the line is open. If anyone would like to call in, area code 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host if you have a question. Well, you know, okay. I, I just want to say uh, thank you because your webinar was just um, great. You know, it, contained, it contains great information. 
and it just inspired me to go ahead and pursue some more files on my uh, on my relatives. Is you know, it's just a genealogy is about you know pushing a, some doors open. I mean, it's right on the other side sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sometimes ancestry makes it look so easy. Is it not that easy sometimes for us as you know African Americans once we get to a certain point? But it's just worth pursuing it seeing what you can find. It is. It is definitely worth pursuing. And so with with that, without any questions coming out of the chat or those coming on the telephone line, I'd just like to just thank you two for coming on, taking the challenge and sharing your stories with us tonight. Uh, I want everybody just remember, and it's in the records, your ancestors left footprints. They left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Thank you so much for joining the show tonight and good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you. Good night, Tanya. Good night, everyone. All right. Good night. Good night. Thank you.